0: Hi. My name is Mickey Robinson and I'm going to share my story with you. I was an aggressive young man who thought I had it all together. And in a few moments, uh, we're going to be in a room full of people. Right now this auditorium is empty and I've shared my story all well, probably hundreds of times all over the United States and in foreign countries and in some ways it's never been the same in any particular time because there's different aspects of it that come out. But basically it's a story about a young man who grew up in America, uh, seeking and desiring adventure, and the things that life would promise would make you happy. Unfortunately for me, I struck my life, hit a terrible, terrible catastrophe, and the good news about my life is that there is hope, even in a hopeless situation. I experienced uh, tragedy in the form of an airplane crash, and I'll get into some detail about that in a few moments. But I also had an experience that uh, doctors now call an NDA, a near-death experience. Well, previous to this time in my life, I had never heard of that. But I can tell you that something happened to me that I can now only explain is I had a heavenly encounter. And that heavenly encounter not only changed my life for that moment, but for the rest of my life, it would never be the same. And I had no advance information on such things. And. Uh, I'm reminded of the popular TV series *Star Trek*, which began in the voice of Captain Kirk saying, "Space, the final frontier, and to go boldly where no man has gone before." Well, I want to tell you tonight that space is not the final frontier, but eternity is the final frontier, and each one of us is going to come to grips with that journey. For me, I slipped through the very edge of eternity and had a brief glimpse of some eternal things, and then my life was sent back here to this earthly body that at that time was destroyed and devastated, Uh, where there was no hope for me to ever live a normal life, but by the power of God, I was healed, restored, and given a brand new heart. So it was more than just giving my life back. It was, I became a new person. And for now, nearly 30 years, I've been alive, and I believe I've been alive for a purpose. And that purpose, one of the main parts of that purpose, is to say that there's hope in this life in every situation. So you'll be joining me live now in Nashville, speaking to a bunch of people in a place called the Belmont Church. Uh, Come with me on this journey and we'll tell you a little bit more about this life. He arrested Mickey Robinson at a very young age and his life took a different turn. And uh, when Ananias came to Saul, he said, the Lord has appointed you to know his will, to see the just one, and to hear the voice of his mouth. And, I, and there is a lot of sense in which that's what he did with Mickey. He appointed him through incredible circumstances to know him, to see the Lord, to hear the voice of his mouth, to proclaim him, to encourage believers, to speak life into believers, and to speak life into unbelievers. Eternity is the final frontier. And for me, I got a little glimpse of that journey into eternity but I came back to talk about it. I grew up in in what uh, the the talk show hosts would call a dysfunctional family. We had alcoholism in the home, we had strife, we had problems. But to be honest with you, I think I was born into a dysfunctional race. So in other words, anything that I did wrong, I'm not going to blame on my parents, I'm not going to blame on alcoholism. It's my fault. I did it. I'm accountable for it. That I just was being raised, and for me, my reaction to uh, the problems was probably uh, I was looking for a life outside of my natural environment. In other words, I wasn't looking to my parents for role models. I didn't want to be like my dad, but I uh, was looking outside. And one of it, I was a little bit adventurous, and that's why stuff like space, the final frontier, all the stuff of reaching out. You know, that spirit of adventure, of searching for something, I believe is in everybody. Even if you think that you're quiet and a bookworm and all that, there's something in everybody that gropes, that probes, that seeks. In every individual, there's that thing. I believe it's what produces people that write stories, that people that, that do art and make paintings. They're searching for something to experience that's beyond what they can see and feel. And I thought, if I, you know, if I could just use my abilities be with the right people, have the right image, I could have or get what I wanted. And I don't know what it was, but I knew it was something more than what I was experiencing. So I was looking with outside my family, outside of the context of other wisdom that was available, to have something that would what? Make me happy. Basically what I wanted, if I could really be honest with myself, was I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be loved. Because I thought, if I would really be honest, Inside, I wasn't this confident, talented, good-looking guy that people might have thought I was. I was afraid. I was dishonest. I was hurting. I was rejected. And I was unloved. And so I would do almost anything to change that, to remedy that. So after I got out of high school, and in high school, after I had eight years of uh, Catholic upbringing, and, and then we went to public high school, a little bit different, but you know, not that much. And uh, they're very serious. No, I wanted to, you know, be good at sports. <clears throat> a lot of different girls, things like that. And this is back when the Beatles first came to America. And so, you know, our society was changing, and, and we were still kind of like in the fifties. And in, in mid-America, you know, California would do stuff first, and then it would trickle down. You know, stuff like that. And and yet, even though our society was changing, I was still the same way in many ways that I was growing up trying to change, you know, and it's so funny because I have kids now that are at the age when I was going through those changes, and it's amazing how teenagers know more than their parents. <laughs> Dad, you don't understand. What do you think, I just came to this planet a week ago? I, mean, <laughs> I did live here for a while, and I was your age at one time, and I did go through some of the change, but I'm willing to listen to dialogue with you about what you're going through. But, you know, everything is brand new, and you want to do everything. So in high school, I was and had all this action and was good at football. And I was the kind of person that I could do anything I wanted to if I even thought about it or tried a little bit. And so that was kind of how I was. But after high school, I, uh, I got a job. I didn't go to college. I got a job in a stock brokerage firm. I started on my 18th birthday. So here I am, this guy, fairly good looking guy, athletic, got the right girlfriend, everything else. And now I'm sitting in this job at the height of an economic cycle in our society during the Vietnam War, on my 18th birthday, working in a stockbroker's firm, and in a few months I get a promotion, and I'm buying and selling stock for this very modern, progressive, really hip outfit. My ego was inflating. I mean, I looked like the Goodyear blimp on a good day, you know? (laughs) Just ballooning out there, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. But you know, there is never enough of anything to really satisfy you. Scripture says, it says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. There's never enough money to satisfy a person. They asked uh, Getty, the oil billionaire, well sir, how much money is enough money? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. (laughs) There's certain things that seem like they satisfy, they seem like they gratify, but you say, this is pretty good, but if we could just do it a little better or do a little bit more. Everything on this earth, everything that's temporal is like that. It gives you momentary pleasure, but then you gotta get another fix. And so while I was in the Stock records thing, that was great, but there was still something more I wanted. And um, I've always been fascinated with aviation, with flying. I mean, even as a real little kid, I loved to look up in the air and look at airplanes. The Goodyear blimp would literally fly over my house. It used to live in Akron, Ohio. I live just north of that. And uh, I loved the old Superman television show. Now, are there reruns of Superman still on? This is the real cheesy black and white cutout. you know. And for a half hour... Once a week, when that show was on, I would tie a towel on my neck, and I'd be on the armchair of our family sofa, and for a half hour, I'm flying, diving off with Superman, watching that show, and my mother was ready to clobber me, you because know, I'm going to probably break this couch, but I just knew someday they're going to invent a little pill that you could take, and you'd be able to fly. Wanted to do that, and uh, always wanted to do, fly. I was crazy about aviation. Studied the space program, the whole bit. Well, that same year that I started working at the brokerage firm, I started taking private pilot's lessons, and that was pretty cool. But when I found out that there was a place where you could learn to jump out of them, airplanes, I thought, this is what's happening. And so I went, and I took my first uh, training to be a sport parachutist, a skydiver. Any skydivers here tonight? How many people have jumped, jumped out of an airplane? There you go, there's always one, and at least one. And uh, so I went out, and I trained, and I jumped out of this airplane. And if I was a personal computer, I hit the delete button and erased everything that was programmed and now all I did was, you will jump out of airplanes, all you care about is skydiving. (laughs) I mean, it's like everything changed in a moment. All my priorities, all my passion, all my desires, it's like, this is it. This is the thing that really trips my trigger. I became a skydiving addict. If you could roll it up and smoke it, I mean, I would have done it. And once you learn, uh, you do five, jumps that are called static line when you hook on with a, a, a canvas strap and it's like a military jump and it extracts your parachute and if you do everything right on your sixth jump you make your first free fall which is where you go out and you enter into free fall and then you pull your own ripcord and there was something about that that was absolutely the most liberating thing I've ever experienced up until that point. It was a perfect name for what it was called free fall. It was like falling into freedom. It's like for those few seconds you've slipped away from every earthly attachment and you've broken some physical law and you were caught between the thing that holds man to the earth and a moment of like your spirit being released. And, and for those, for, for the, you know, and then after you advance, you, you, if you get good enough, then you go on and you have longer, you go up higher and you have longer free falls. And free fall is really where it's at. Opening the parachute is a mind blower. I mean, that is awesome. When you open up, poof, you're standing there and your feet are standing in the sky, and the earth is a half a mile below, and it is beautiful. It's so quiet, and so, pe- some people look at me like, this man is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely beautiful, and it's such a uh, environmental change. You know, the environment is so different. Like, when you step out of an airplane and you go into the atmosphere, and all of a sudden you get this big rush, and then you open up this parachute, and there you are suspended, you know, in mid-heaven. It's a big change. But it was, to me, it was a sense of peace. And, and for me, that moment, those moments when I was in free fall under that parachute, that's when I thought I was really alive. That's when I felt like I was really alive. It's almost that this was like, it was worth it to live all week to do that, for that moment. And if I would look at my life up until that point, everything in my life progressively got more and more centered around me. So now I had become... Something of an image that I, whether people liked it or not, this was who I was. I liked it, I was good at it, I enjoyed it, I want you to accept it. It was using my talent, my ability. I had some new friends, I had some old friends, but my new friends were this elite group of people that were called the skydivers. These were people that were, I mean, far more elite than any group I'd ever been with, more than the, the, the stockbrokers, because these were people who did it just for the pleasure And I was jumping with the best skydivers in the world. I jumped with the national champion and and the best skydivers literally in the world. I was getting very good. I was asked to be on a professional demonstration team. And now I didn't care anymore about anything except jumping out of an airplane. If someone would have told me that skydiving was my idol, I would have certainly disagreed with them. But I'll tell you what is your God. It's what you love most. That's God. You can ask a person, well, what's your priorities? And they'll give you the right list. But I say, well... What did you do last week? What did you care about most? What did you give yourself most to? What occupied your mind most? And you'll find out what your God is. And for me, skydiving had become my God. There was no amount of money that was too much money to spend on it. There was no amount of time that was too much time to devote to it. There was no too many miles for me to drive to it. I mean, I would drive from my house out to this Amish country airport Uh, 70 miles away at 90 miles an hour so I could be the first one to get on the airplane. I would risk getting traffic tickets. I would lie to my girlfriend why we couldn't go out that night. Why? Because I was committed to that moment of freedom and pleasure. And when I did it, it just created a greater appetite to do it more. And it was at a time when it seemed like everything in my life was in my control and in my hands. Little did I know that life could change in a moment. Do you know that your life can change in a moment and there's nothing you can do about that? And without any particular warning, it can change and will never be the same again? I did not know that my life was going to change and it would never again be the same forever. I mean, I was cruising along knowing that I had the world by the tail. I knew I could be the world champion. I knew there wasn't any barrier I couldn't break with my talent. I was jumping with the best skydivers in the world. Doors were opening to me. But the main thing was, I was doing it because I loved it. It brought me great peace and great pleasure. On August 15th, 1968, we were going up to make a routine parachute jump. We had two uh, student skydivers. One of them was a man who had never been in an airplane before. Obviously, he's never jumped out of one either. And he was going to make his first parachute jump. A second man was going to get out at 4,000 feet and make, uh, I think, about his 10th parachute jump. He was going to make a 10-second free fall. Uh, He would go out at 4,000 feet. And it takes, uh, when you make a pass like that, it takes time to get up there and then make a jump run. take takes some more time. And so it was going to take some time for this particular flight. It was just a middle-of-the-week practice jump. And then three of us, myself and two other experienced skydivers, were going to go up to 13,500 feet which is pretty high, and make an a extended free fall that would last about 66 seconds, we're going to do what's called relative work. That's when you go out and one person goes out and other people succeed them. And, and it's called relative work because you have to make your speed relative to the other person. And it requires synchronizing your speed and skill, and it's a lot of fun. And it's really a tremendous mind-blower when you look in the sky for the first time and see somebody face-to-face that's falling at the same speed as you. It, it really is pretty, pretty amazing. And so we were used to doing this. And so we were going to get on the airplane. And, uh, and I changed places with one of the other guys that uh, was going to go up uh, to the higher altitude. And um, I was sitting on the floor next to the pilot. And for me to get in and out of an airplane was about as difficult as you to get in and out of your car to come here tonight. It took absolutely no courage. no. I was never afraid to skydive, and, and especially after I started doing it. It was just... To me, the flying was very boring, and it was very long. And so, I mean, I, didn't, I wanted to get up there and get out of the airplane and get in, into free fall. And so this was going to be a long flight. So I was kind of dozing off as the pilots do in the pre-flight, and they do all this stuff to make sure the airplane's going to go. And, and I'm just kind of falling asleep. And it was so casual. I mean, I had my acts so together. I mean, this is nothing. This isn't even serious, you know, being in an airplane. This is nothing. And we're going down the runway, and I didn't notice. The, the airplane sputtered a little bit. And... Got going again, and you wave at the people on the ground. We call them groundhogs. We call it, We call them uh, ground. These are people that hang around airports and look at skydivers. We call them groundhogs and woofos. Like woofo, you're jumping out of that airplane. Like that. <laughs> woofo, you're jumping out of a perfectly good flying airplane. You know, and groundhogs. And there was a lot of wannabe skydivers who they hung around, but they never jumped out of the airplane. And they knew everything about skydiving, but never did it. And so there was always. So we'd wave at those people and give them the peace sign or you know something like that. But we were cool, because we were going up to jump. I mean, you have to understand. We understand who they are, and we know who we are. I mean, it's, The mind is an incredible thing to waste. <laughs> and we're going up, we wave to people, and we take off, and uh, the airplane is zooming down the runway and goes up, and we're probably, you know, 150 feet in the air, going 100 miles an hour, and I was awakened by a sound that I wasn't used to while being in an airplane. It was the sound of dead silence that motor just quit and there was no chance to restart it. And not only did the engine quit and we lose our acceleration, but the pilot had pulled the, had rotated, uh, rotations when you take off, and pulled the stick back in a very steep uh, angle of climb. This was a new airplane for him and it was, to him it was very powerful and he was enjoying it and so mm. he was going straight up. But when we lost the motor, we also lost our lift, which is the aerodynamic force which causes the airplane to fly. So we're going 100 miles an hour this way and then it's like we're being dropped literally out of the sky. So the first thing that happened is the nose pitched forward and the airplane began to plummet towards the ground at an incredible dizzying rate of speed. And the first thing that was seen, and this is what was told to me because a lot of what happened afterwards, I don't remember, was told to me. They saw a huge oak tree coming up right to the cockpit. I mean, the first scene was that the nose pitched down, the airplanes just, like it was released, and it was falling at a tremendous rate of speed, and what we're coming at is this giant tree. And so, imagine there was a lot of there was no chance to try and start the engine, no chance to try and do a crash landing because we lost all our lift. Last thing I remember is the pilot turned to me and said, That's it, we're going down. And we hit that tree at that rate of speed. I was thrown forward, um, tremendous crash impact. We hit that tree right, fortunately, we did not hit head on, but we hit right where the wing is joined to the fuselage. This was a Piper Cherokee 6, a six passenger aircraft. We had removed all the seats except the pilot's seat. And uh, I was sitting on the floor next to the pilot. When we hit that tree, I was thrown forward, and my face stopped my body going 100 miles an hour. Then the airplane cartwheeled on its wings, and there's um, a picture of the airplane. I think David, you want to pass it around. I've never had one like this before. And it slammed into the ground, and then belly side up. It was obviously a devastating crash. There was shock and confusion going on. Uh, uh, The two student skydivers were both injured and dazed and stuck in the baggage door, didn't really know what was going on. The third man kind of pushed them through the baggage door and they took off running. The fourth man, who should have been the first out of the airplane, was just regaining himself uh, from being thrown in the back of the airplane after the impact and uh, was turning the corner to go out of the airplane and he saw me moving and the pilot moving and naturally assumed we were on our way out. As he was leaving, a fire just then started and as he was just, A few yards away, the plane just went up in flames and he heard screaming and realized that two people were trapped inside the airplane, myself and the pilot. So this brave man turned and went back to the airplane, pulled himself through that fuselage door and saw me uh, with my leg protruding through a hole that was torn in the side of the aircraft where the wing had been attached. I had my hand up here and I was trying to pull myself through the safety, uh, to the safety through the outside and I was soaked with gasoline on fire from head to toe. It's like you've seen in many movies or... Where uh, people had caught fire, and the airplane gasoline was very high octane, and I had my jumpsuit on and parachute equipment. And something, even though I was trying to go to safety, something was holding me. Part of my equipment or clothing was hung up on part of the metal, and I was stuck inside a burning airplane. And this brave man grabbed a hold of those straps and said, Help me, Mick, help me. And he said, I started pushing my leg, and it's one of those things with superhuman strength just tore me loose from there, dragged me away from the plane, yelled to the pilot, Walt, I'll do your seatbelt, I'll come back for you. He pulled so hard he pulled his thumbs out of his sockets. And ran as far as he could. He collapsed and uh, started putting the fire out. And uh, he said, "Get up and go." And I, I ran a few steps and collapsed. And he crawled over and began to roll me back and forth. Took three, two or three times to put the fire out because it kept reigniting. And then he turned to try and go back towards the flame, uh, towards the plane. Uh, him and a, one of the other skydivers in the plane by then was just just blazing into inferno. And the pilot was, was unfortunately was burned alive while strapped in his seat. Well, an immediate uh, examination by these guys, I was devastated. I, I said through all the smoke, so how bad am I hurting? He said, ah, oh, with the smoke and all that, we can't tell them. They really didn't know if I'd even make it off the field. And an ambulance, somebody had called. One of the neighbors must have seen the smoke and drove right back in the field. And they loaded me on and drove me as fast as they could to the nearest hospital, just a little community hospital. and Certainly not the kind of place uh, for the kind of trauma and devastation that I had gone through, but they took me there and cut what was left of my clothes off and saw that I had sustained very serious third degree burns over uh, 35% of my body. Plus I had a brain injury, I had a laceration that tore my face from the corner of my mouth up the side of my head. I, uh, had, I was blind in my right eye, I didn't know it then And I had obviously cuts and bruises and from that kind of crash, all kinds of trauma. The worst thing about a burn other than the initial shock and trauma are the complications that you can get afterwards and of all the things that, I, that they hoped I didn't get, I got all of them. I went from 167 pounds of solid muscle down to 90 pounds. I developed infection all over my body. My my hand was so badly infected they were going to amputate my arm. I had a brain injury, a contusion, a swelling of the brain from, from the tremendous impact we made. I developed then what's called a curling's ulcer. It's a stress-related ulcer, probably from all the shock and the pain and the trauma. Your body kind of goes haywire and overproduces gastric juices and had this big hole in my stomach on the inside. I was bleeding profusely. Some days I was bleeding as much as 10 pints of blood in a single day. Almost the entire volume of the body was being emptied and they would put blood in. I totally, totally drained the blood bank and then things got worse. Uh, um, Infection was also inside my body. I had microorganisms living in my blood. Like I said, my my right eye was blind. Um, The pain was out of this world. I mean, you cannot imagine. The tremendous pain. There's no, amount, there's no amount of drugs that can take away pain like this. And yet, as sick as I was, and I was getting sicker, my body was fighting to live. And it's amazing to me, and, it, uh, you know, and I read some of the accounts, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, of all that was wrong with me. And it's amazing how your body fights to survive, creates things to counteract. You know, The Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Anytime you ever get sick, even if you get a cold or the flu and you get bitter, you thank God for your healing because God has put His living nature inside every living thing and He's made things where the body will go into action and try and repair that which is broken. And as though my body was fighting like crazy, it was fighting a losing battle and and I got worse and worse. I developed uh, decubitus ulcers. Those are bed sores uh, on the backside of my body where the tissue just rotted away and bones were sticking through my flesh visibly my flesh and my heels and my backside and my hip and I finally got so sick and the nerves in my legs died, uh, my feet were curled up like claws over the end of the bed and they brought an expert physician in from one of the world's leading educational hospitals, Case Western Reserve Hospital in Cleveland and he examined me and determined, uh, he he listed, I read a number of years ago, I read his summary for uh, the 700 Club before you send your testimony and and I read all this stuff, and it cost about $150 a paragraph, $150,000, I think, a paragraph to read it, you know, all the medical problems. And I got in reading I thought, I knew I was sick, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> it was all these things. And at the end, in his last paragraph, he has, a, he has a sentence. He says, there's simply nothing that I can offer this young man. From that point, they gave up, and they were going to just let me die. They were going to try and keep me comfortable, give me as much dope as I could tolerate, and let me die. And I remember, now some of the times, I was out of it. I was in a coma. Other times, I was in the twilight zone. But sometimes, I was more alert than I am right now. I was hypersensitive to what was going on. I was having experiences that were real profound. And never once at the beginning did I think I was going to die. I knew I was in big trouble. I knew I was in deep yogurt. matter of fact, for the first time, I was in a situation for the first time in my life that I couldn't get myself out of. Any other time I could talk my way out of it, I would know somebody, I could come up with something. For the first time in my life, I was in more trouble than I could get myself out of. And now the situation got so that I was so full of pain, I was running a fever of like 106 for several days. I was shaking under the heat of this fever, and then they had me on this green, underneath my sheet was a green vinyl pad that had tubes in it, that they refrigerated fluid because they couldn't do alcohol rubbing or ice packs that they would on a normal person to bring a fever down because I was all raw. They, would, they just wrapped towels around my body and soaked me every two hours with silver nitrate, which is a cauterizing agent to try and kill the dead tissue. Then they would do debridement, where they would just take scissors and clippers and just pull off the dead skin, most of the time without an anesthetic, to try and get that stuff off me before it kills me. And there I am burning up with a fever and freezing cold at the same time. I was so traumatized that if someone would walk by and even brush the bed with their leg and brush the sheet, it felt like somebody hit my entire nervous system with a sledgehammer. Let me tell you, you can take a lot of trauma, but you're still alive. And yet, life was going out of me. And on a day that the doctor had come in and done his morning rounds, the head doctor who was in charge of my case examined me, called my sister who had just had an infant child. So she was not able to come with the rest of the family to make the vigil and stay all day to come in for one minute, three times a day to visit me. He called and says, Barbara, if you want to see your brother, you better come here right now because he will not be here this afternoon when I come back. From everything they were getting from my body, this was it. And I felt that day like my body was just shutting down. Like if there was a switch box in my body, the switches were all going to off. I could feel life just leak out of me. And I'll never forget that day. As I had never heard any story like this that I'm about to tell you, never read an article, never saw anything on a film, But as I lay there in that much pain and in that much trauma and for the first time feeling like I was going to die, I had an experience that I'd never heard anything such like this. As I lay there like that, suddenly the room around me began to dissolve and my spirit man, the real person that lives inside, you see, I believe you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Well that spirit man sat up inside the bed uh, out of my body and it was like perpendicular to my body and then suddenly I was ejected from my body and I began to travel. And I was not in the room floating around looking at things. I was in a spiritual dimension. And this spiritual dimension, this spiritual world, that's the real world. And this spiritual man that I was seeing and perceiving, that was the real me. And I instantly knew it. The colors are brighter. The thoughts are more intense. Feelings are more, have greater depth, they're more real, and you don't, in the spirit world, instantly I knew this is the real world. And in the spirit world, you don't have logic and reasoning, you know, based on the sum total of the great knowledge I've acquired and all these things. I think I've entered a spirit, and it's like you know that you know that you know all the time. It's like having a word of revelatory knowledge all the time. And also, instantly, there was no sense of time. See, everything on earth is related to time. You get up this morning, you're going to go to bed at night. Something is new, it'll get old. Something is born, it's going to die. Everything on the physical plane is relative to time. But everything in the spiritual plane is relative to eternity. Instantly, I was in total consciousness and awareness of eternity. And you and I, as we live on this earth, cannot even comprehend it. Because everything that we have here is still within this veil of the temporal life. But in the spirit life, that's more real than anything else. And it's awesome. Eternity as a concept is awesome. There was no such thing as time. I knew that whatever happens is going to go on forever and ever, wherever I was being shown. And I was traveling somewhere. I could feel myself traveling. And as I began to perceive and understand what I was doing, it became more intense, and I could see this at a distance, this white light that was growing. And as I began to travel towards that light, as if I was being drawn and carried, there was nothing I could do to change it, off on my right side, there began to enclose around me a blackness as if you're in a room and you're in a dark room and you're closing a door, it was like that was, was happening. You know how you get in there and it gets smaller until there's a sliver of light? Well, this blackness began to close and I could feel the very nature and reality of that blackness. There was no matter in it. There was no thought in it. There was no experiencing There was no life in it. There was nothing. It was eternal, empty nothingness forever. And the more I began to peer into it and perceive it, the more intense it became and the faster it went to it was down or it was closing down to a sliver of a half inch of pure white light that went eternally down that way and eternally up that way. And I know if it closes, I am cut off forever from the source of all life. Now people say to me, were you a a Christian when all this started? Like I said to you, I I was raised Roman Catholic. I believed there was a God. I believe he's out there somewhere in heaven or the universe in management, taking care of everything, but I'm busy on earth. I'm getting it on. And the only time I ever even acknowledged God is when I wanted something. And now, and, and but, but I'll tell you this, from the time they brought me in the hospital, for the first time in my life, I knew that the big shot skydiver, stockbroker, good looking guy, couldn't do a thing to help himself. For the first time in my life, I needed help. And I said, God, I'm sorry give me another chance. Some of the times they were going to take me into surgery and I lay on that table and I saw all those chrome instruments they were about to use on me. And the serious looks on the faces of the doctors and nurses. I said, God, I'm sorry. Please give me another chance. At four o'clock in the morning when they've given you the last shot of morphine they're allowed to give you and it hasn't done a thing. And you are shaking in your boots and you ask for help and they think you're delirious and they won't help you. And you cry. I said, God, I'm sorry. Please give me another chance. Now I'm standing on the very edge of eternity. About not just talking about dying as a 19-year-old kid who was trying to live. I'm talking about forever being sealed away from the presence of Almighty God, from the chance of doing anything. You know what I think the worst thing about what I saw was? Which I think was the outer darkness. Is that if a person goes there, they'll have every passion and every desire that could ever be even experienced and have no chance ever to fulfill any of it. And there'll be eternal remorse of knowing what they could have had and having no chance to get it back. And I tasted that for a moment. So now I'm standing on the very edge of eternity looking to this light that was about to be cut off from me and I'm screaming from the inside of my spirit, no, God, I'm sorry. Please, give me another chance. I want to live. And right before this blackness severs me from the source of that life, I'm standing in the very presence of Almighty God. Instantaneously. I can tell you I know what it means where it says, in His presence is the fullness of joy and in His right hand pleasures evermore. Instantly I knew I am never gonna die. Not eighty years, not a hundred and ten years talking I am never gonna die for eternity. And this being who I was experienced, the shining light of His radiance, I could feel His love. Not only was I not gonna die, He was gonna take care of me forever. Now I did not see New Jerusalem. I didn't see the streets of gold. I didn't see Mickey Robinson's Hacienda Manor, under construction, (laughs) soon to be finished. I didn't see Peter Paul or or Almond Joy. I didn't see any of those. But what I saw, I wish you could see what I saw. I saw the glory of God. It was like liquid golden radiation that went eternally that way. went forever up that way. went below me. It was behind me. It vibrated through me. It had in it all of God's love, all of his authority, all of his wisdom, all of his comfort, all of his strength, it's the most powerful, it's the most blissful, it's the most enjoyable experience you can have. It is never going to be boring in heaven. And uh, I I, I either get irritated or amused when I hear people talk about what they want heaven to be. I'm going to have a big golf course, I'm going to have hunting. Hey, you're going to want to hang around God. (laughs) It's awesome. I mean, I cannot put into words. And this light, this glory I was seeing, this light was alive. And I didn't know if I was dead or if I was alive, but if I was dead, I want to stay dead. <laughs> it's awesome. And then God began to reveal future events to me like I'm watching it on a large screen television. And I'm not talking about a little spot here. I'm seeing seconds, minutes, days, hours, weeks, months and years consecutively connected together happen. I'm seeing people I never met and suddenly I feel like I know them. I'm seeing things that are going to unfold in America, like the crisis of the drug problem and the horrors of the curse that's going to bring on this country happen. And I didn't have any knowledge of half the stuff I was seeing. I saw scenes of myself doing rotten, sinful, stupid things, saying, Don't do that, only to watch it. I said, Oh, what'd you do that for? You know, and then some of the things were so magnified, I felt like I was in them when I was watching them. And when those things happened years later, you talk about conviction, you talk about a spiritual encounter. I could feel them coming, and then they happened. Three times in my life thus far, I had experiences where I couldn't speak for two days. Not because I had laryngitis, because I was in spiritual shock because of the encounter with the Lord. And after a season of this revelation that I now kind of calculate that covered a period of time, about seven years, the Lord revealed to me, he didn't speak to me like I'm talking to you tonight. The knowledge of his will came inside me. And I knew I was headed back to the earth. And you know, and when God says something, guess what happens? <laughs> I started to go, and I said, "No, I don't want to go back to. I like it here much better, you know." And it was this, and I still have even struggled with a kind of a remorse why that was, but it was for His purpose that I came back here. And in the same manner in which I left, I was like if somebody, if I was a kite, somebody was reeling me, and I began to drift back through space and time, and my spirit settled back into my physical body, and I could actually remember how it felt, as if you were wind. And you were blowing through a big bushy tree. I could feel my spirit push through my flesh. Suddenly, I could start to hear out of these ears and see out of this eye. And the room kind of pulled together, materialized like it does on Star Trek. And this person who was gone was now back. And out of my mouth was this beautiful language just saying these things. I had never heard of such a thing. And my mind thought, what the heck is this other language? <laughs> and as soon as I thought that, it stopped. And that sickness and that fever was broken for the first time from when I came into the hospital, and I don't know how long it was, it was maybe a matter of two or three weeks or whatever until this crisis came, I, my head sank down the pillow and for the first time I went to sleep and rested. Other times I'd pass out or I'd go into a coma again because there was so much trauma. But this time I, I felt asleep. I don't know how long I was asleep. It was a couple of hours or what. And I woke up and the bed was all twisted up full of body fluids with parts of me stuck to it. But I woke up, it was like I was floating on a raft floating on an ocean of peace. I was experiencing a peace that was stunning. It was mind-boggling. I cannot, I wish I could lay hands on you and have you feel it for a second. It was unbelievable. And all around me are this big apparatus to start up dead people and hoses and all this stuff. And then the room is filled with doctors and nurses with this horrible look on their face. Serious, uptight, anxious. Look at me like this. And I'm thinking, and I could feel, I all of a sudden had this ability to feel and perceive what they were feeling. And I thought like, What is the matter with these people? They're so uptight. I mean, everything is wonderful. I got this peace. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm not even one notch better than a roadkill. I look like I've been hit time and time. I'm a disaster. And I'm sure I smell worse than I look, you know. Of course they're uptight. You see, the Bible says he gives peace that passes understanding. And this occurred to me, actually, it was a couple months ago, I was traveling somewhere, I thought, you know, that's probably, and this is this is a thought that came to me, that's probably the healthiest I've ever been on this earth. I was dead completely to all physical ability, but totally alive in the spirit. I didn't care about nothing. Because that glory that I had seen was now inside of me. Now, I didn't have any information up here, but there was a lot going on inside here. From that point on God began, I was still I was still sick as a dog. I was then, you know I was blind, I was crippled. They said both legs were nerve damaged and paralyzed. They said I'm never going to walk again. This is not a battery-powered nuclear deal here. This is you know and there was I had a lot of problems. And I was still I could die at any minute. You breathe on me the wrong way I could die. But I had eternal life. I had the spirit of God living inside me. And I had a future. It was, God answered my prayer. He gave me a second chance. Now, I was in that hospital for 167 days. And I was transferred to a rehabilitation hospital where people were basket cases. They had 400 beds in there, and every one of them was a disaster. There was a whole segment of our society I knew nothing about in my cocky, got my act together life. I didn't realize that there was chronically ill people that were trapped in bodies that were never gonna get better. And I went in there, quadriplegics, paraplegics, people blind, people with all kinds of problems, and I was a disaster, but God was redeeming me. And in the, in the period of time that was to follow, I went from being a person who was blind and was, was, was said that I would never walk again normally, would never ever have an ability to walk, that God began to quicken me, and God began to heal me. And I could tell you some pretty remarkable things. Like, I was blind in my right eye for five and a half years. I can see every one of you tonight. They do not understand how I can see. Both of these legs were nerve damage, where they put electrodes on my m- nerves to see if they get my legs to work, and they didn't even twitch. This one twitched a little bit, this one didn't. This leg came back kind of supernaturally, naturally. This one never did, and I had a leg brace on this leg. And I would speak to my legs and say, legs move. This leg was a very nice, obedient leg. <laughs> it would cooperate. This leg would lay there dead as a mackerel. It would move. It's a real bummer when they won't listen to you. you know. And one day, out of the blue, I had no extra feeling, no goosebumps, nothing. I just had legs move, and my leg was instantly and completely restored. Now, I had never been in a Christian church. I had never seen television. I didn't know about divine healing. I just had anointed ignorance and had this thing. I wanted to get better because I wanted to get out of there and jump out of an airplane again. Yes, yes. And my leg worked. And this doctor, see now also, while I was so sick with this ulcer that digested my esophagus, they had, I, on top of everything else, my esophagus got destroyed and I couldn't eat food for a year. They had a rubber hose in my stomach and that's how they fed me for a year. I went through Thanksgiving and Christmas and watching a little Sony TV with a 900-pound turkey it looked like and there was just juice coming out of it and I wanted to eat the TV, you know. <laughs> And the little cute little candy striped girl would come in, oh, Mr. Robinson, when we have your dinner, you know, and she'd hang this plastic bag up there, unclip this hose, and this white goop would come down through this hose and go into my stomach, brrrr. It didn't even warm it up, you know, it was about thirty eight degrees. And they had to stretch my esophagus out by pulling this little chrome plated bullet through this little tiny opening in this much of my esophagus. They said I'd never eat normally. They would pull out twice a week I was having these operations. And they had this little green string coming out of my nose because that's what they would attach. And I, and I would tape about 10 miles of tape on my face at night. Because if I swallow that string, they're going to shove that instrument down my throat again. Now. It was like, I thought it was an Ed Sullivan doing a sword swallowing. It was terrible. And so the day that the Lord healed my leg, the doctor, they got to figure stuff out. You know, they got to figure out how they're going to cover themselves. They didn't know how my leg worked because I had a leg brace, I threw it away. My leg is completely restored. So he took me to every clinic in this hospital. The eye clinic, the dental clinic, the radiology. He said, look, we did a new procedure today. He'd pull that string and I'd kick my leg like this. (laughs) It's It's a medical miracle. Okay? (laughs) And I had a lot of other things. I mean, I could tell you story after story of impossible things that happened to me physically. But I tell people this almost every place that I go, especially the first time as sensational as all those things are, to be forgiven of my sin and to have a clean conscience and to be born again and to know that God loves me is greater than any of those other miracles. I, and I am not just saying this for the sake of, of effect or exaggeration. All of those things were just a hint of the love of God. Now I'm still, not only, and and for a guy as vain and as cocky as me, I experienced some other things. I didn't really care that much how I looked. And I looked really bizarre back then. I mean, I would cause a lot of traffic accidents when they first (laughs) let me out of the hospital. I mean, I was really responsible for a lot of insurance problems. But all I wanted to do, I went and jumped out of an airplane again. And, you know, I did. I could barely walk, and it was the only time I was ever afraid. And I wasn't afraid of the skydiving part. I thought I am too skinny to fall. (laughs) And on the 6 o'clock news, on the weather, they're going to say, we've got a cold front moving into Ohio. And, hey, who's this guy going across the jet stream? <laughs> and I jumped, you know, and it was great. And the people thought I was amazing. And it, my first jump was from 12,500 feet, 60-second delay. And it was great. But it didn't turn me on quite. It was great. Skydiving is fun. I want you to know it. But there was something else that was drawing me. And I began to search. And I began to study every world religion. And certain events were happening. Because I, still, I was... You know, I had lost the girl I was engaged to. I had a broken heart that was pretty bad. Anybody know what a broken heart is? Did you ever have a broken heart so bad you never think you'd ever be right again? God will heal your broken heart. It's part of his job is to bind up the brokenhearted. And concerning those three things that were important to me, my image, my friends, and my abilities, hey, I literally lost my image. Quite literally. My friends, you know, I was just young and we had a lot of friends and new people, but... They've got to go their own way and all that, and I lost all of my friends. Abilities? I was reduced to none. And it is dehumanizing when you can't even take care of yourself your own human functions. But I got those back, and I got another image back. But now as I live, I don't want my image. I want the image of Jesus Christ. And I just don't want my abilities. And I thank God, man. I snow ski. I roughhouse with my kids. I've jumped out of airplanes. I'm still, is teaching is teasing me tonight. He says, you've got to stop thinking you're 16. <laughs> <laughs> I like my abilities. I'm grateful for them. But when you can operate in his abilities, you'll know something that no one else can ever know. And friends, i got family all over the world. But I know what it's like to be lonely about two years later. And see, I didn't have any, under, any spiritual understanding of what happened in my heart. And, and a lot of the people, this is back during the peace movement and the hippies in Vietnam, and people were singing about peace and talking about peace, but it wasn't real peace. Now I identified with the part that they were talking about, about love and peace and brotherhood and unity, because that was in me. But when I saw people burning down buildings and things like that, I said, that's not me. I had an, an incident where uh, I was at a concert in uh, Akron, Ohio. was about a thousand people there i was there with some people i knew and even though i was there i felt like i was alone i felt like there was and i was i was sitting on the floor in the midst of a break after one of the songs and and i was just thinking i said god no one there's no one that understands what's going through me and no sooner were those words and i just whispered them under my breath out of my mouth and i felt pressure in my shoulders and i looked up and here's this young woman Long wavy brown hair down about here in big elephant bell bottom pants, tears streaming down her face. She said, God, he's so beautiful. Just take him deeper. See, somehow God heard my prayer and sent somebody. She could she didn't hear me pray. She could know nobody could hear me pray. I was praying under the Lord myself. I didn't even know how to pray. I was just speaking out of my heart. And God was saying to me, I understand everything about you. I'll never forget that as long as I, I felt waves of love just wash over me. Just wash over me. I had so many other experiences in my life when I had nobody to talk to and God would show up in my life. And then God began to bring Christians in my life. And I went through a crisis again in 1975 where the Lord was basically saying, if you have nothing, will you follow me? And he, I went through another breaking. I've had three major breakings in my life. This was the second one. He even took the precious woman that I'd been married to for, for two years and she got deceived or confused and didn't think we had a life together. I didn't care anymore about money. I didn't care about people. All I wanted to do was be right with God because even though I experienced all of his love, all of his power, his anointing, his healing, his mercy, I was intermittent with God. You see, people can have experiences with God. People can even be born again and filled with God's Spirit and still be on the run from him or still not know what he wants from you. God wanted more from me than for me to be in heaven with him. God brought me to a place where I was stripped naked and I didn't care. All I wanted was to be in the will of God. And when I let everything go, he basically says, if you have nothing, will you follow me? And I couldn't hurry enough to say yes. And at that moment, he touched my wife 400 miles away, filled her with the spirit of God. And what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. And We have never been apart or out of fellowship See, she need, she, I needed to know something for myself that there was nothing in this world that could have me. And she needed to know that she had a life in God that was not vicariously through me, that she stood on her own. And God has blessed it. There's many other experiences I had that are very real. I want to just tell you something. I don't claim to understand everything that happened to me, but I understand this. I was blind, and now I can see. I was lame, and now I can walk. I was brokenhearted, and now my heart's filled with love. I was poor and God's restored to me much more than I have ever dreamed. I'm not talking about money or things. I'm talking about the reality of knowing what really counts. I'm not saying that my life's been easy and I could tell you some things and you know that I'm not kidding. It's not been easy. But is it worth it? It's more than worth it. It's the only thing that's worth anything. In the period of time when I really committed to the Lord, knew that the Lord had called me to do something in a particular way and began to open doors in ministry. A lot of the teaching and the preaching was all about being committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, I would drive, it if I thought God would sneeze, we'd, Barbara and I would go there. We'd, by then we had little babies, we'd take them, throw them in the car, we'd go anywhere we thought God would do anything. We'd stay up, read, watch stuff, have people over, everything was, it was 724, Jesus. <laughs> and, and we loved it. And, and yet this whole thing about being committed, being committed, I mean, I, I felt like I was got to sell out anything. And I believe that in a dimension, but it was a few years ago through a precious friend, I saw another side of that. You know that one of my favorite parables is really one of the shortest ones. There was a man who was a merchant and he was going through a marketplace and he saw a pearl. And that pearl was more beautiful than anything he'd ever seen. So he took everything he had and he sold it to buy that. How many like that, that parable? I mean, didn't that kind of make it simple? I thought, yeah, that's what it is. You've got to sell it. You've got to be willing to lay down everything. You've got to be willing to invest everything, all your time, all your talent, all your motivation, all your cares. But there's another side to that. And it's this. You're that pearl. And you're that pearl. And you're that pearl. And God took everything he had. He took his only son. And he sold him. That he might buy you. Because you are more beautiful than anything he's ever seen. You see, we've got to start thinking about how much God has committed himself to us. And out of that love of God, we'll be able to walk with Him. We can talk about self-denial all we want. The best way to accomplish self-denial is to learn just to do what He asks you to do. You can make lists, you can quit this, you can want to get rid of that, but if you just walk in simple obedience, let me tell you, He's got a plan for your life that is impossible for you to do without Him. And yet if you don't do it, you're going to still be looking for that mysterious adventure that's going to satisfy you. Part of the plan for me is, I want to see healing come to the body of Christ. Because I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to have the joy of the Lord and to be a man of sorrows. Because that's who I am. I mean, I'm not bummed out about what happened to me back then. This stuff doesn't bother me. But I've gone through some stuff that's a lot harder than that makes the airplane crash look like a cakewalk. I have the joy of the Lord, but I'm still a man of sorrows. We live in this world, this is not perfect because what I saw there, That is better. But God had a reason for me to come back here, and one of them, one of those reasons is to encourage people. He's got a plan for your life. If he can take me, if there's anything about my life that should make sense, is that God let me become absolute weakness. There is not a doctor. I had an atheist doctor tell me that what happened to me was a miracle from God. There is not a doctor that would examine me or read my report to say anything is possible for none of me to be, be alive, but to, have, to be able to walk and to be able to see. But what happened to me inside is awesome. He gave me hope where there was no hope. And I know there are people that look like they're together on the outside. Let me tell you something. God's not looking for people who got their act together. He's looking for people who know their act is over. He can't he really can't use people who got it all figured out. He can use people who say, Lord, you'll have to show me. you have to do it through me. But he wants, he's chosen to use people to work his will. And it's going to be people that have a heart that's renewed and have a passion. I want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I thank you that out of weakness and out of hopelessness, you manifested your strength and your love, which is, is otherworldly. Lord, I have been touched by a supernatural being from another dimension that we call God, but it's your, that's not a good enough word. I thank you, Lord, that you forgive our sins. And not only do, you, do, you, do we have a promise to be with you in heaven, this is not about death, this is about life and what we're to do with it. And I pray for these people tonight, anybody else that might hear this, that God has a plan for your life that's the greatest adventure that you'll ever get to go on. And it comes through a person named Jesus Christ. If you will just identify with His love, with His power, He will change your life. He'll arrest you and apprehend you and He'll bring you into His purposes and you'll find out what it really means to be alive. Tonight, I want you to know that you are that pearl that God looks at and says you're beautiful I wanna touch your hurt I wanna touch your brokenness I wanna touch your talent and I wanna use it for my glory and in the process you're gonna enjoy things that you can't even begin to understand what could have been the tragic end of my life has turned out to be a new beginning of a brand new life there's lots of things that I didn't share in my story because The things that happen in my life go right up until today. There's been experiences and encounters that uh, God has given me. I've got a wife, four children. And I'd be remiss or I'd be a liar to say that everything in my life has been perfect since I've come to know the Lord. No, there have been struggles, great struggles. But the difference is I always have a place to go at the end of the day or during the day to take my troubles too. And God has proven to be to me a person who really loves me and is interested in even the smallest detail of my life, not just the big things like a life-threatening disaster, but in the, in the smallest detail of my life. I believe that I am alive for a reason. Part of that reason is to go everywhere I can and share the hope that there is in the Lord. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've been trained. I don't know if you've been in church. I don't know if you're in someone's home watching this video, but I can tell you that what you've seen tonight is a true story of a man who was brought to absolute hopeless weakness so that God could show his love and his infinite power. I was not just restored physically, but I was restored spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. And the love that I have now is more than human love. It's the love of God. I want you to know that love. I believe that why I'm alive is to share with people that there is hope when it seems like there's no hope and that there's a reason that you're alive. I don't think that we should just hang around here for forty or fifty or sixty years and be some highly involved beast just to shove all the pleasure in that we can. If that's all there is to life then you might as well party. But I know and I've seen that there's a life beyond this. But what we do here is important and I think that you need to know that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus without meeting with disaster. All you have to do is ask. It's as close to you Is your ability to pray. If you want to pray to know the Lord, if you want to pray for a deeper walk in the Lord, I want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want to know Him as my Lord and my Master. I want to be forgiven of my sin. And I want to start a brand new life. I want to have direction. I want my life to count for something. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life, to make me a new person, and to send me on the path that you want me to walk on, and to do the things you want me to do. I surrender my heart to you, that you might have full rule and reign in my life. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with the Lord, or more about how you can let your own personal life make a difference in this world. We're going to have an address and a phone number at the end of this video. But remember, even if you didn't pray tonight when you saw this or today, remember, God knows your heart. As much as he was able to hear my desperate prayer, and I tell people if there's anything that's significant or outstanding about my life, it's that my life is an example of weakness. And by contrast, God was able to show his overpowering love and his unlimited strength that in weakness I've been made strong that through my weakness God has shown his love. If there's anything outstanding about me it's that, I, it's that he's taken the weak things of this world to show his love. So there's nothing I can brag about about the good things that happened to me but I can thank God that he's given me a, a second chance and it's been my pleasure to share that with you on this video. I hope you can enjoy it, share it with someone else and know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Thanks.